hello 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 welcome to part two of my discussion i say discussion but really i'm talking to myself so (laughs) about black lives matter this whole movement everything in between i think i've been realizing some things that i wanted to add to my previous podcast i just thought i'll just make it into a part two because that would be more efficient that way so um here we go so in the first podcast i kind of looked at the whole identity nature of it i i looked at the case of amy cooper i talked about you know what i saw the things i was encouraged by the things i was somewhat discouraged by on the economic front but i do think i do kind of see it as my job to kind of Put these things in context so i wanted to talk more about you know as we see the movement start to develop and you know grow and build and things like that i think i want to talk about stuff that will be important for us to add to our movement because if we really want you know revolution type change i think we cannot ignore what i'm going to talk about in this podcast which is the economic side when we talk about the fact that right now we live in a system in which black lives are treated as expendable and you know not mattering hence the phrase black lives matter i think we have to talk about what kind of systems we mean that are doing those things and again like i said in my previous podcast i don't maintain that these systems are in themselves inherently racist but again what happens when you have a system that's inherently unfair is that it's always going to disproportionately you know, affect the people at the bottom. You know, if we were to have a system now where we say everyone has to fight for a meal, obviously the stronger people are gonna, you know, get more of the meals than the weaker ones. Now, maybe because, you know, men have testosterone and they're more aggressive and things like that, they're gonna come out on top. However, that doesn't mean that the system itself was designed to be sexist. But that was only an inevitable outcome of, you know, designing the system in such a thoughtless, brainless way. So I think this is an important component to to the protest in which I'll be talking about and the movement generally. So I think developing from what I talked about in the first episode, we talked about, you know, making the movement more holistic and talking about, you know, black lives. And we have seen a lot of. I don't want to say hijacking or co-optation, but because people are not adding a class critique to this whole issue, you are seeing a lot of blind spots in which we in the West, you know, in the empire, in the teeth of the empire, in the US and the UK, we've been preaching about, you know, white privilege and white supremacy and things like that for this whole time. You know, liberals love this saying, recognize your privilege, check your privilege very infuriating saying by the way because sometimes it makes no sense and it has no meaning but i think if we really want to go there with this we have to start looking at our privilege given the fact that we live in the empire and a lot of the things the empire does whether we like it or not we benefit from it we benefit from the fact that you know there's a lot of cheap labor in global south countries we benefit from the fact that you know there's a lot of war in the middle east where we you know they still we steal their oil that's i think something we have to really confront so I think it's time for us to use our privilege to speak for other black people living, you know, under the boot of the empire who have no means for redress. 
the people in Haiti, the people in Somalia, and obviously brown, black, whatever you want to say, sometimes the sufferings can be ubiquitous that way. So when we talk about, you know, Yemen and Syria and Venezuela and Nicaragua, you know, the empire doesn't care that you know, they, they're dark skin, brown skin, it doesn't matter. The oppression is the same. So we have to start using our privilege to speak about these peoples. And I think that's kind of what I want to be talking about today in terms of a more systemic critique of Black Lives Not Mattering. So when we talk about countries like Haiti, the first black republic and the first country to you know, abolish slavery in the modern times, obviously, I'm sure many other, you know, small quote unquote countries did it thousands of years ago or something like that. But and the fact that they've been, you know, under the boot of the empire for the past, you know, 220 something years since we have to start adding them to our movement. You know, it's not enough for us just to say, oh, racism and systemic racism is when, you know, there are no black CEOs on corporate boards. I really don't see how, you know. It's almost what we'd be accusing the white people of doing in saying that, you know, yeah, there are loads of poor white people, but our issues are uniquely different because we have the added level of racism. I think we have to do that for, you know, our other black and brown brothers and sisters as well. Yes, I don't know, we face, you know, some racism when people look at us funny and people talk to us funny, but by and large, you know, our lives are vastly better than they are. And a lot of the times, you know, our struggles are connected in the sense that it sounds a bit macabre to say, but we're benefiting from, you know, their suffering. So there's no way we can ignore this and keep on talking about how Nike has no one on corporate boards and, you know, this company has no one on corporate boards. But these are really, you know, this is like white feminism, you know, basically erasing the real struggles to talk about how, you know, we can't get this 250k a year job and a company car because, you know, we're black, whereas people are literally being blown to pieces and their countries are being destroyed and i'm not saying you know that's not an issue too but again when we talk about privilege which we you know people the liberals love to talk about we have to start recognizing our privilege in talking about these very important issues imperialism is something that's very very important and i think it's something we have to start addressing so i think i also bring that up to talk about the fact that i've been seeing a lot of people say oh you know they don't use the term people of color anymore they don't use the term bame anymore just we need to turn black because our issues are separate and distinct. First of all, I don't really like this because then it starts to make it seem like, you know, we're the only ones that face any kind of oppression. Yeah, everyone's issues are different, but it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that, you know, our issues are any worse than other people's, you know. Oppression is oppression. When you talk about the people from the Middle East and, you know, Muslims that, you know, are subjected to, you know, very Islamophobic kind of stuff because the war on terror is very front and centre in a lot of our politics maybe up until recently, we can't ignore that. We can't say, oh, somehow, because we're black, our struggles are, you know, worse than theirs in some way. You know, that's very important. So I think, you know, connecting these struggles, because again, if we're going to talk about, you know, imperialism, which happens in, you know, many, many countries, not just countries of people that look like us. Again, many of these countries, they're not like, everyone's not dark-skinned there. You know, the people of Somalia, most of them don't look like me. I'm quite dark-skinned. Most of them don't have the same hair texture as me. So let's not start, you know, getting ridiculous and saying only dark skin, you know, 4C type hair people are allowed in a movement. Let's just stop that rubbish right now, yeah? Because, you know, I guess the people of Somalia are on the African continent. But, you know, they don't look like West Africans. West Africans don't look like North Africans. But, you know, there's no reason why we can't connect to struggle because it's a more holistic thing to do. 
if we're talking about a march for you know to say no to imperialism and we're gonna have you know just people marching for somalia over there people marching for yemen over there people marching for syria over there people marching for haiti over there what's the, what kind of movement is that you know we have a common goal so when we you know start to talk about you know fighting imperialism and i think one of the easiest ways we can really do this is just making sure we include it in who we vote for we can easily say we're not going to vote for any parties that support funding for you know selling weapons to israel or selling weapons to saudi arabia or support you know having any extrajudicial you know um prison camps overseas where the law doesn't apply there this is a very easy thing we can add to our politics that would you know make a huge difference because we're saying this is what our vote is, you know, is for. And if you want to win our vote, you're going to have to move left on these issues. It's a very, very simple way to show solidarity. Of course, we have to go much further than that because voting is just one component, you know, one very tiny component of, of these issues. But it's a significant component nonetheless. You know, the NHS is always a voting issue. That's because everyone cares about it. And I think also we do have within the center and the you know the right we do have ways where we can easily draw you know i want to say solidarity but we can really you know bring our movements together in this way a lot of those people are against war and they're not against war for the same reasons we are which is that you know they're killing our black brothers and sisters and immoral and stuff like that i'm sure you can convince them to feel that way but generally it's more because they feel like you know their resources are being wasted and also because they send the poor people to war all the time they don't send, you know, the rich, wealthy people to go and fight wars. They send the poor people. So we're saying, you know, why do you want your, you know, your kids dying? You know, your kids, your fathers, your uncles, your your sisters, your aunties. Why would you want them dying in a stupid war for imperialism, for oil, for some, you know, wealthy corporation like, you know, Northrop Grumman and Raytheon and which one do we have? A BAE Systems and all that. Why would you want, you know, your kids to die so you can make profit for these companies that don't give a shit about you? You know, this is a way where we can start to, you know, bring them into our movement. Like, you're being had. These people don't care about you. So not necessarily by making it seem like they're some irredeemable racists that support these wars. Because, you know, when we look at a lot of wars, most of them are really opposed by, you know, the populations of the West. You know, people are against the Yemen war imposed. People are against the Iraq war massively. There was, you know, a million people came out to rally against the Iraq war. So it does show there that, you know, it's not just some kind of, you know, they do war there because, you know, the whole country is irredeemably racist and stuff like that. Let's not use rhetoric like that. We have to start connecting our struggles. You know, the reason why a black person might be poor and on benefits is probably the reason why a white person might be poor and on benefits. The system is rigged. It's so annoying because Trump said this, but the problem with Trump is... He always correctly diagnoses the issue. Then he comes to the completely wrong conclusion. It's so frustrating. But, you know, you always get that. Especially even on the right. You see people like Tucker Carlson say, Oh, we shouldn't be in Syria. And you'll be like, okay, okay, I'm with you, I'm with you. Then he'll say, Oh, because, you know, those, you know, dirty Arabs don't deserve our weapons. Oh, no, no, Tucker, no. That's not why. And I think another way we can really combine these struggles is to show that we are fighting the same thing. Capitalism. The violence of capitalism, you really, really have to make people understand. Because I think when you do it just talking about, you know, the police and, you know, these one layer issues, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't join for people. It's kind of like, you know, well, you know, I don't know, I guess I don't commit crime. I don't really see police, so I'm fine. 
but we have to show them how police violence is really just a very small element and the fact that a lot of people are trying to see that you know the police are a problem we have to then connect it to who the police really work for and the violence of you know the elites austerity one of the most evil and violent policies that you know anyone can enact it's, it's a policy that people know when these people enact it they know it's gonna kill people like they know this but it's just fact it's, it's kind of baked in you know like okay we're we gonna do that we're gonna kill people take for example 2008 the banks selling this stupid subprime mortgage and you know all that kind of fraud they ran the economy into the ground and then what happened we had obama and you know uh, you know the people here in the uk as well they they literally gave the banks billions and billions some of them in tax-free loans some some of them in, you know low interest zero percent loans and some of them just free money so they can quote-unquote build the economy back up which basically means keep making profit that's why the banks only stopped making profit for like a year because they gave them records amount of money but then they said at the same time we're going to give the people that ruined the economy money we're going to start cutting all the public services that the poorest in our society depend on that's that's these are sick people but we have to connect this imagine if you know we were talking we are we're highlighting this as we, talk, as we talk about the issue of police brutality and black lives matter you know poor people's lives matter we have to start talking about this you know it's going to make people realize that so this is why my benefits are being cut all the time and i'm getting benefit sanctions when my back is broken and i can't show up for work then they're going to start realizing this is truly violent you know highlighting stories of people that are like terminally ill and the you know dwp's telling them to come and show up for work showing them that this is the violence the elites do on a daily this is just part of the course for them what the police are doing is basically you know the physical aspect of what they're doing you know policy wise and mentally you know, they're all they're almost doing their violence by stealth whereas the police are doing it you know with the batons and the guns and all these you know military weapons whereas they're doing it with a pen and paper but the effects are exactly the same. That's why we have, I don't know if you know about this, in America, they have right now, their life expectancy is going down. Can you imagine that? In the richest country in the history of the world, their life expectancy is going down. And that's because they have what they call deaths of despair. That's a lot of the deaths we have in our countries. So when you see stuff like suicide going up, when you see stuff like, you know, drug abuse going up when you see stuff like you know addictions going up these are deaths of despair what does that mean that means people are so sick they're so fed up they're so trapped and boxed they have no way out they start to turn to the most harmful and destructive things and really these these things again they're connected to people's racism they're connected to people's bigotry you know the fact that someone's going to turn to alcohol or heroin or cocaine when they're facing a very traumatic event, even though they know that's not obviously in the long run very helpful, it's no different from a person that's been watching and you know, reading the Daily Mail and the Sun and watches all the Tory ads telling them about how health tourism and you know Polish migrant workers are the reason why there's no social housing, are the reason why the NHS is on its knees. They're obviously going to read that, combine it with the rage they're feeling of their impotence. They vote for Tory. It's the same. They vote for Labour. It's the same. There's nothing they can do. They're powerless. So they're going to start engaging in very destructive practices. So if we really want to, you know, build a revolution in that way, we have to start showing them that 
not not you know screaming in the face that you know you're so racist and you know you you disgust me blah blah because I don't that's not gonna change their mind. You have to start showing them that you're being lied to. It's really you and I against those motherfuckers at the top. It's not you versus me. You know, it's not the people that you know you have to share crumbs with that are your problem. It's the someone. It's the person that's holding the whole cake and dusting it off so you can have the crumbs. That's your real enemy. And I think this is how we build a proper revolution, build a massive coalition to really make systemic change. Also, talking about the barbarism of war, think about it. America wants what Iraq has, which is oil, for example. Instead of negotiating like normal, rational human beings, they completely destroy the country. Use depleted uranium, maim the children, just completely ruin it just so they can steal what they have. I mean, we're meant to be the most civilized, you know, peoples who have ever existed, the most civilized species there is. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to think even animals behave this way. It's, it's insane. And this is the kind of culture that corrupts, you know, stuff like police, stuff like the military, because the violence is from the very top. Think about people like Obama. We have drones now. Presidents can literally just, you know, order someone to be assassinated. There's no judicial review. There's no, if the president say, you know, says, you know, or the prime minister says you're a non-US or UK citizen and we're going to assassinate you, you can't appeal that. You can't say, um, excuse me, let me look at your evidence as to why you want to do this. Let me look at your reason. You, you have no choice. Hence why Obama was able to assassinate two US citizens. Think about that. Now, again, of course, we wait for the Iraqi citizens and the Yemeni citizens and the, you know, Syrians and Libyans and all that kind of stuff but think of the significance of people you know, even we're not safe and we think you know, we're in the teeth of the empire because arbitrarily the president can just demand you to be executed I mean this kind of stuff you've seen like a mafia film or something Goodfellas you know the mob the, the mob boss the Don just saying oh you know let's, let's clip that guy let's clip him take him out and he had a list like this guy goes to sleep at night he has children this is someone we meant to expect to participate in normal society. And he has an assassination list. Well, I'm going to kill this guy tomorrow. I'm going to order this guy to be killed. Do you think that's what him and his wife talk about, you know, when they're in bed together? Oh, you know, who do you kill on your list today, you know? You know, you kill this guy. Okay, that's nice. That's nice, actually. How do you feel? Do you feel better? Do you feel empowered? Or I'm sure he justifies it, you know, he's doing it for, um, you know, safety and... Know, security and national security and all these other nonsense but we have a completely failed system capitalism run amok and the chickens have come home to roost and i do think the outpouring of rage and anger is beautiful but as you know someone who views myself as an historian as someone you know who's been who thinks a lot about these issues i would like to direct the energy you know to a more broader you know perspective to look at you know the fundamental underlying issues of, of our system and i think right now you know this is a very very good time to do that because there's a, there's tremendous energy there's an appetite for that kind of that kind of knowledge a yearning for it people wanting to understand how can it be that you know a policeman can just kneel on someone's neck and for like about eight minutes and then just you know choke him to death just murder him while the people are recording you know how can it be that people do that how can it be that, you know, almost like watching like an ISIS execution video or something? How can that be? What's happened to our culture? 
And I think this kind of, hopefully, the work I'm doing will help enlighten people to, you know, really, when you think about actual, you know, the type of murders we have going on in our society, this is just one very, very small element of it. And every so often, you see one of these stories of this, what we should really call corporate violence go viral. Like I talked about, the story of the man that weighed six stone when he died. He was literally starved to death. I mean, just, just flat out evil. Or the story of a woman that, you know, she was owing 29 cents and they foreclosed on her. You have to again understand how violent what the Obama administration did <coughs> post, you know, the, the financial crisis. So they built out the banks for like 1.5 trillion. Then all the homes that, you know, the poor people lived in that couldn't afford to pay, they kicked him out of the homes. Obviously, once you get kicked out of a home where you're paying mortgage on, you don't get your mortgage back. You don't get your equity back. That's the money. That's free money that's gone to the banks. Then they gave the homes back to the banks. And now the banks can sell the home for, you know, more or less the same price. So if they don't have to sell it, you just keep it as an asset for now. This is how wealth inequality increases during, you know, a situation like this. We're thinking, wait, it's an economic downturn, but somehow those people are still making more money because of openly violent. I mean, think of how violent that is. Someone kicked out their homes because of 29 cents. You're telling me you can unbail out the banks and keep the people in their homes at the same time. A lot of this violence as well is punitive. You see stuff like, you know, they sold um, the Saudis weapons just because they wanted to, you know, boost their re-election campaign. The Saudis have, you know, big donors. So, sell them weapons so they can destroy Yemen and, you know, we can have that money. You know, Obama started selling weapons to the Saudis to use in Yemen in 2015. Well before Trump, you know, and I guess a lot of people didn't know about it. No, it wasn't, the opposition wasn't as great, but now Trump is doing it, you know, which is again why, that's kind of why I don't like Trump. You know, he's a fraud, he's a liar, but you cannot, you know, you, you can't dismiss the fact that he's really, really opened a lot of people's eyes to these inequities. You know, mo- a movement like Black Lives Matter would be almost impossible to do if Obama was president, you know, because it would be like, you have a black president, you know, what more do you want? Millions and millions and millions of white people voted for him. So why is he not doing all these things you said you want to get done? He really was a step back for the movement, Barack Obama, because it's, it's, it's co-optation at its finest. You know, it completely launders everything. All the critiques we have of the empire and, you know, capitalism and corporatist. It basically just kills it. You know, because it, it just draws away all that energy by saying hope and change and all these kind of things and he just uses it for sometimes even more right-wing stuff obama was the one that started the prosecution of julian assange imagine if obama didn't you know try to prosecute assange for doing journalism and then trump tried to do it now it would be far more effective for people to oppose it because even the corporatists that don't like you know assange they'll have to admit that word we've been saying trump is this great threat to press freedom and we have this guy which is a you know a poster child for you know, press freedom, and we're going to let Trump, the far right that we hate, you know, destroy him. But it's much easier for him to do that now because Obama had been doing it. You know, Obama had been building those cages, had been deporting those people. So we have to start centralizing our issues because I always worry again that the end, the implicit argument of every identity argument is that, you know, if my people were there, it'd be different. You know, if you say a system is racist, then you're saying that's because, you know, it's doing it's white people doing it to us. Whereas if it was black people there, oh, everything would be completely different. 
the reason why Nike is exploiting sweatshop workers in, in Vietnam and you know China and these places is because they don't have Chinese people on their board. No, that's not why. Of course not. They do it because that is their corporate agenda. The system is the problem and the system is capitalism. All roads lead to capitalism. That's the number one thing to take from this. Also, we don't critique the system by talking about black capitalism. By talking about, you know, supporting black businesses. I guess I'm agnostic about it because, you know, it's fine. I think when you support small businesses, I support all of them. You know, I try to anyway. I always go try and do that because I think that's important. I think, you know, those people need it more for their livelihoods than, you know, a massive corporation. So that makes sense. But I don't see how supporting a business that's run specifically by a black person, I don't see how that does anything specifically for, you know, black people writ large. So I'm at a loss as to, you know. And again, how would you choose if you had like, you know, a small business run by, you know, an Asian person and then a, a, a black person, you'd support the black person because they're black and you're black too. Seems like an odd way to, you know, to do things. Of course, if it's a situation, you know, we buy a lot of our foods that we eat, African foods and stuff from Africans already, you know, things like that. But I don't see how that's going to solve a systemic problem, you know, just buying stuff. Because again, who can afford to sell, buy and sell stuff? The majority of black people work in, you know, low wage jobs, you know, retail and fast food and restaurants and stuff like that service jobs so really if you want to support them the biggest way we can do that again is by calling for maybe an increase to the minimum wage or even big than that collective bargaining which is something that seems so obvious but i guess because our, our system is so capitalistic i think that's an easy way as well where we can make systematic change why should the wages of someone working in mcdonald's for example be capped why shouldn't it be dependent on how much McDonald's make in a year? Just like the CEOs is, you know. If you've done a really good job, McDonald's is going to make record profits again. And you should get a fair piece of that. There's no, no reason at all why, you know, the CEO should be getting a thousand times the amount that, you know, one of the fry, the fry cooks is getting. Does he work a thousand times harder than, than that person? I don't think so. So why can't they collectively bargain and negotiate their pay? I guarantee you, if we have a system of collective bargaining, actual democracy in the workplace, you know, capitalism is obviously incompatible with democracy because there's no way anyone's going to democrat, you know, democratically allow, you know, two or three people to own all the money everyone, all of us make. You know, if you, if, you know, four of us were in a, you know, a partnership together in a business, there's no way the other three are going to vote to give me 90% of the profits or the income. That's not how, you know... <laughs> that's crazy so this is an easy way in which you know we can make actual systemic change if there was collective bargaining at mcdonald's and the minimum wage goes from the poverty nonsense it is now to 20 pounds an hour that means anyone that works there white black asian blue indian native american whatever it is they will have a sustainable decent income to live in you know this is how again we can build solidarity. Imagine if our movement, Black Lives Matter, is known for bringing collective bargaining into the UK. I promise you we're going to get huge amount of people more you know, willing to support us because they're going to see that, wow, these people are really making you know, big change that's helping everyone. That's going to help black people, like, again, because they're disproportionately working you know, these jobs anyway. That will be very helpful for them, you know, and it's going to be helpful for everyone else doing the jobs, as it should be. You know, we can't forget, you know, our white, you know, brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters living in poverty too. Poverty doesn't know colour that way. 
you know, it's very, very harsh. We can have different experiences, of course, but different experiences doesn't mean they're not, you know, very, very similar. You know, if your kid can't, you know, if your kid's going hungry and can't eat at night, doesn't matter if the kid's black or white. Hunger is hunger. You know, so the, the, this is the kind of systemic stuff we have to start looking at, you know. Collective bargaining, very, very important. The right to negotiate your income. And again, we see that in all the middle management, all the corporate level jobs. Because again, CEOs or the, you know, the corporate jobs, they get bonuses when they do well. Where's the workers' bonuses? Why is it McDonald's goes there? Oh, we've made record profits this year. We're just going to just pay you the £8 we agreed to pay you. The minimum wage is really a cap on wages. You know, he had good intentions in which it was designed to be. But there's got to be, we have to go much, much further. I mean, obviously, again, the fact that it's not democratically decided, which is that all of us might want the minimum wage to go up, but the CEO, you know, McDonald's super PAC can just donate, have a private dinner with Boris Johnson. And just like that, the minimum wage won't go up because one person can decide the fate of, you know, hundreds of thousands of McDonald's workers in the UK. We have to democratise the workplace. And we can't do this under capitalism. This is where, you know, socialism comes in. You know, the fry cooks, the people rearing the animals, the people delivering it, the people driving the Uber, they all should have a say because they're really the ones that make McDonald's. We can have a McDonald's without a CEO. We don't need that. We don't need that. Most of McDonald's are franchises anyway. They don't even have anything to do with the CEO. So you can really have a McDonald's without the corporate structure. I know these people like to think they're really important, but they're not. So if we can have a McDonald's without a CEO, you know, without, you know, some McKinsey consulting, why can't the people doing the work, the people who really make McDonald's, when they always do their ads, they'll put, you know, they'll put the people there, oh, you know, this is what makes McDonald's great, the people that work for us. Why are those people not having a say? You know, they don't have a say in, you know, what time they start, how much they get paid, how many hours so many things it's too restrictive this is what we talk about when we talk about making systemic change so i'm going to leave it there hope you've really enjoyed this podcast hope i wasn't too angry if there's any more suggestions of you know things we can do like actual tangible stuff you know like the collective bargaining we talk about like building our own alternative source of power you know please do let me know i'm very much always for that to amplify those so we can you know get more people thinking about it get more people realizing you know we do have a way out you know there are you know concrete things we can fight for as opposed to the catch-all phrase of revolution we could go you know negative or positive and i'll leave it there i'll speak to you guys soon Thank you.